Hello, and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. My name is Rob. Are you muted? <coughs> I totally was. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, hi, my name's Trisha, and we will be your host today. We are doing part three of Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. Yes, yes, we are. <coughs> um, I'm glad that we've really been able to like get back into this lately, um, and I frankly think that we had one of our best streams ever. Uh, yesterday, well, two days ago when you're watching this, but well, yesterday yeah. when when we're recording this, um, we had on Mako from Elahi Spirit Runners. Uh, he's also known as the Invisible Warrior, and. I guess to try to sum it up as short as I can, I think that it is the least that Trisha and I have talked ever <laughs> in a stream. In, in, a, in such a good way. Because, <laughs> dude, he is such a compelling speaker, and the experiences that he's telling us about, you know, just he's fucking inspiring, and he's a beautiful soul. Like... What he's doing is so important. So, yeah, if you guys haven't seen that yet, check that episode out and hear what Mako has to say. Because it's motivational. And that's rare for me to say about anybody. But seriously, he's someone who can light a fire under your ass. Make you uncomfortable with the best, best ways possible to actually look at yourself and your own actions and go, do my actions line up with my words? Am I actually taking action? Am I putting, you know, my money where my mouth is? That That's the type of thoughts that have been going through my head, you know, with speaking with him. It's, it's definitely, you know, a wake up call that we both needed, you know, at least yeah. from the conversations we've had. Um, just beautiful the work that he is doing it's fucking inspiring well said um all right so today which is part three um we are picking it up uh, on the on the pdf of the book that we will have in the description uh we are on page 30 in the, the paper book, it's page 45. Um, and we um, kind of have adopted a new model when doing theory pieces like this. Uh, we, we just play a, uh, an audio book and then pause it to discuss it. It's a lot easier on the voice. <coughs> There's a lot less stumbling over things. Um, so, yeah. Um, this time we found, um, well, I found what I guess on YouTube, uh, from exam info. Um, I just subscribed to them on YouTube, but, uh, people have in the comments shown where the chapters started and that's, that's kind of what made it possible. 
um, oh, to yeah. just jump in, not at the beginning of the book. So, uh, thank you to Exam Info. But uh, do you want to just dive in, or do you want to like talk about the stuff we've already read, or? All I was going to say was, and this has been your usual awkward intro. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> Four vignettes on Watts. Folsom Prison, August 16th. 1965. As we left the mess hall Sunday morning and milled around in the prison yard after four days of abortive uprising in Watts, a group of lowriders, note, lowrider, a Los Angeles nickname for ghetto youth. Originally, the term was coined to describe the youth who had lowered the bodies of their cars so that they rolled low, close to the ground also implied was the style of driving that these youngsters perfected. Sitting behind the steering wheel and slumped low down in the seat, all that could be seen of them was from their eyes up, which used to be the cool way of driving. When these youthful hipsters alighted from their vehicles, the term lowrider stuck with them, evolving to the point where all black ghetto youth but never the soft offspring of the black bourgeoisie are referred to as lowriders. From Watts assembled on the basketball court. They were wearing jubilant, triumphant smiles animated by vicarious spirit by which they too were in the thick of the uprising taking place hundreds of miles away to the south in the Watts ghetto. Man, said one, what they doing out there? Break it down for me, baby. They slapped each other's outstretched palms in a cool salute and burst out laughing with joy. Homeboy, them brothers is taking care of business, shrieked another ecstatically. Then one low rider, stepping into the center of the circle formed by the others, reared back on his legs and swaggered hunching his belt up with his forearms as he'd seen James Cagney and George Raft do in too many gangster movies. I joined the circle, sensing a creative moment in the offing. We all got very quiet, very still, and others passing by joined the circle and did likewise. Baby, he said, they walking in fours and kicking in doors, dropping reds. Note, reds are barbiturate called red devils, so-called because of the color of the capsule and because they are reputed to possess a vicious kick. And note, and busting heads, drinking wine and committing crime, shooting and looting, high-siding and low-riding, setting fires, slashing tires, turning over cars and burning down bars. Making Parker mad and making me glad. Putting an end to that go slow crap and putting sweet watts on the map. My black ass is in Folsom this morning, but my black heart is in watts. 
tears of joy were rolling from his eyes. It was a cleansing, revolutionary laugh we all shared, something we have not often had occasion for. Watts was a place of shame. We used to use Watts as an epithet in much the same way as city boys used country as a term of derision. To deride one as a lame who did not know what was happening. A rustic bumpkin. The in crowd of the time from L.A. would bring a cat down by saying that he had just left Watts. That he ought to go back to Watts until he had learned what was happening or that he had just stolen enough money to move out of Watts and was already trying to play a cool part. But now blacks are seen in Folsom saying, I'm from Watts, baby! Whether true or no, but I think that meaning is clear. Confession. I too have participated in this game saying, I'm from Watts. In fact, I did live there for a time, and I'm proud of it. The tired lamentations of Whitney Young Roy Wilkins and the preacher notwithstanding. All right. Is there anything that uh, you want to say so far? Uh, no, nothing coming to mind other than just appreciating his blunt honesty about the situation. Yeah. Fair enough. Calling right. it out for what it is, you know? Yeah, for sure. Eyes. Folsom Prison, October 28th, 1965. Once I was walking down Main Street in L.A. around noon on a Saturday, and it was a beautiful sunny day. I was just a young stud, about 16, I guess, and... I had one of those I think I'm cute type walks, prancing and rolling on my toes. Before me and adjacent to the sidewalk was a shoe sign stand facing in my direction. A jukebox was blaring a tune of the times and I got caught up in the music as I walked along. I was kind of walking in time to the music. Sitting up on the customer seat was a big fine sister who was propping her fingers and wiggling to the music and smiling at me because our eyes had met. There was no one else in the shine stand and just as I came up, even with the stand, the record ended and I stopped in my tracks, staring at the girl in a fascinated stupor. Then without warning, she sang, beautiful, beautiful brown eyes. Wow, that did me in, cleaned me out and I realized that I was standing there gaping at her like a country fool. I was really confused and embarrassed and I cut out, completely blowing my cool. And as I split, I saw her cracking up with kicks. It really made me feel good though and I've always treasured that memory because the incident was so penetrating. I had quite a different experience during a factional power struggle among the Muslims in San Quentin. A right wing brother tried to undercut me with a smear tactic. Brothers. He said to all of us one day, Brother Eldridge should not be allowed to hold any position until he's been a Muslim for seven years. He's got the mark of the beast on him. Look at his eyes. He's got the devil's eyes. That startled me and touched a sore spot. A lot of other brothers were also confused. 
But one of my friends saved the day by pointing out that many so-called Negroes have funny beast eyes. The devils have mixed us all up. Even the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has light-colored eyes. Brother Malcolm has light-colored eyes. So don't be going around here talking like that because you're only spreading disunity. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches unity. If you call yourself a Muslim, brother, you're going to have to start thinking positive and put down all that negative. The cat had to beat a hasty retreat, but I was bleeding inside. Soul Food, Folsom Prison, November 3rd, 1965. You hear a lot of jazz about Soul Food. Take chitlins. The ghetto blacks eat them from necessity, while the black bourgeoisie has turned it into a mocking slogan. Eating chitlins is like going slumming to them. Now that they have the price of a steak, here they come pratting about soul food. The people in the ghetto want steaks, beef steaks. I wish I had the power to see to it that the bourgeoisie really did have to make it on soul food. The emphasis on soul food is counter-revolutionary black bourgeois ideology. The main reason Elijah Muhammad outlawed pork for Negroes had nothing to do with dietary laws. The point is that when you get all those blacks cooped up in the ghetto with beef steaks on their minds, with the weight of religious fervor behind the desire to chuck, then something's got to give. The system has made allowances for the ghetto whites to obtain a little pig. But there are no provisions for the elite to give up any beef. The walls come tumbling down. A religious conversion, more or less. Folsom Prison, September 10th, 1965. Once I was a Catholic. I was baptized, made my first communion, my confirmation, and I wore a cross with Jesus on it around my neck. I prayed at night, said my rosary, went to confession, and said all the Hail Marys and Our Fathers to which I was sentenced by the priest. Hopelessly enamored of sin myself, yet appalled by the sins of others, I longed for Judgment Day and the trial before a jury of my peers. This was my only chance to escape the flames which I could feel already licking at my feet. I was in a California Youth Authority institution at the time, having transgressed the laws of man. God did not indict me that time. If he did, it was a secret indictment, for I was never informed of any charges brought against me. The reason I became a Catholic was that the rule of the institution held that every Sunday each inmate had to attend the church of his choice. I chose the Catholic church because all the Negroes and Mexicans went there. The whites went to the Protestant chapel. Had I been a fool enough to go to the Protestant chapel, one black face in a sea of white and with guerrilla warfare going on between us, I might have ended up a Christian martyr. St. Eldridge, the stoop. It all ended one day 
at a catechism class. The priest asked if anyone present understood the mystery of the Holy Trinity. I had been studying my lessons diligently and knew by heart what I had been taught. Upshot my hand, my heart throbbing with piety, pride, for this chance to demonstrate my knowledge of the word. To my great shock and embarrassment, the father announced, and it sounded like a thunderclap, that I was lying, that no one, not even the Pope, understood the Godhead. And why else did I think they called it the mystery of the Holy Trinity? I saw in a flash, stung to the quick by the jeers of my fellow catechumens, that I had been used, that the father had been lying in wait for the chance to drop that thunderbolt in order to drive home the point that the Holy Trinity was not to be taken lightly. I had intended to explain the Trinity with an analogy to three-in-one oil, so it was probably just as well. The Christ and His Teachings Folsom Prison, September 10, 1965 my first awareness of Thomas Merton came in San Quentin back in, I believe, 1959-1960. During that time, a saint walked the earth in the person of one Chris Lovedjeef. He was a teacher at San Quentin and guru to all who came to him. What did he teach? Everything. It is easier just to say he taught Lovedjeef and let it go at that. He himself claimed to be sort of a disciple of Alan W. Watts, whom he used to bring over to Q to lecture us now and then on Hinduism, Zen Buddhism, and on the ways the peoples of Asia view the universe. I never understood how, quote, the Christ, as I used to call, loved the chief to his sorrow and pain, could sit at Watts' feet because he always seemed to me more warm, more human, and possessed of greater wisdom than Watts displayed either in his lectures or his books. It may be that I received this impression from having been exposed more to Lovejeef than to Watts. Yet there was something about Watts that reminded me of a slick advertisement for a labor-saving device aimed at the American housewife out of the center page of Life magazine. While love the chief's central quality seemed to be pain, suffering, and a peculiar strength based on his understanding of his own helplessness, weakness, and need. Under love the chief, I studied world history, oriental philosophy, occidental philosophy, comparative religion, and economics. I could not tell one class from the other. Neither could the other students, and neither, I believe, could love the chief. He was all love the chief. The walls of his classrooms were covered with cardboard placards, which bore quotations from the world's great thinkers. There were quotes from Japanese, Eskimos, Africans, Hopi Indians, Peruvians, Voltaire, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Jesus Christ, Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, 
Rabbi Hillel, Plato, Aristotle, Marx, Lenin, Mao Tse Tung, Zoroaster, and Thomas Merton, among others. Once Love the Deef gave a lecture on Merton, reading from his works and trying to put the man's life and work in context. He seemed desperately to want us to respect Merton's vocation and choice of the contemplative life. It was an uphill battle because a prison is in many ways like a monastery. The convicts in Love the Deep's class hated prison. We were appalled that a free man would voluntarily enter prison or a monastery. Let me say it right out. We thought Merton was some kind of nut. We thought the same thing about Love the Deep. My secret disgust was that in many ways I was nothing but a monk and how I loathed that view of myself. I was mystified by Merton and I could not believe in his passionate defense of monkhood. I distrusted Love the Deep on the subject of Thomas Merton. My mind heard a special pleading in his voice. In his ardent defense of Merton, Love the Deep seemed to be defending himself, even trying to convince himself. One day, Love the Deep confided to us that he had tried to be a monk but couldn't make it. He made it all right without even realizing it. San Quentin was his monastery. He busied himself about the prison as though he had a special calling to minister to the prisoners. He was there day and night and on Saturdays without fail. The officials would sometimes have to send a guard to his class to make him stop teaching so the inmates could be locked up for the night. He was horror stricken that they could make such a demand of him. Reluctantly he sit down heavily in his seat, burdened by defeat and tell us to go to ourselves. Part of the power we gave him was that we would never leave his class unless he himself dismissed us. If a guard came and told us to leave, he got only cold stares. We would not move until Lovejeef gave the word. He got a secret kick out of this little victory over his tormentors. If, as happened once, he was unable to make it to the prison because his car had a blowout, He'd be full of apologies and pain next day. Loved Jeef had extracted from me my word that I would someday read Merton for myself. He did not insist upon any particular time, just some day. Easy enough, I gave my promise. In 1963, when I was transferred from San Quentin to Folsom for being an agitator, they put me in solitary confinement. The officials did not deem it wise at that time to allow me to circulate among the general inmate population. I had evolved a crash program which I would immediately activate whenever I was placed in solitary confinement. Stock up on books and read, read, read. Do calisthenics and forget about the rest of the world. I had learned the waste and futility of worry. Years ago, I had stopped being one of those convicts who take a little calendar and mark off each day. 
When I asked for books to read in this particular hole, a trustee brought me a list from which to make selections. On the list I was delighted to see Merton's The Seven Story Mountain, his autobiography. I thought of love, Chief. Here was a chance to fulfill my promise. I was tortured by that book because Merton's suffering in his quest for God seemed all in vain to me. At the time, I was a black Muslim chained in the bottom of a pit by the devil. Did I expect Allah to tear down the walls and set me free? To me, the language and symbols of religion were nothing but weapons of war. I had no other purpose for them. All the gods are dead except the god of war. I wished that Merton had stated in secular terms the reasons he withdrew from the political economic, military, and social system into which he was born, seeking refuge in a monastery. Despite my rejection of Merton's theistic worldview, I could not keep him out of the room. He shouldered his way through the door. Welcome, Brother Merton. I gave him a bear hug. Most impressive of all to me was Merton's description of New York's black ghetto, Harlem. I liked it so much I copied out the heart of it in longhand. Later, after getting out of solitary, I used to keep this passage in mind when delivering black Muslim lectures to other prisoners. Here might help if I unmute. So I want to just like interject here because it's it's been a while since either of us have said anything, but. Um, his his depiction of religion is pretty spot on, I think. Um, Agreed. Profound the way he put it. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It's one of those uncomfortable conversations that has to be had when it comes to involving your religion with your politics yeah yeah i mean and the only god that's still alive or i, I forget exactly how he worded it already but the only god that exists is the god of war and I, I think that we see that literally every day yeah sadly yeah that's what happens when you live in a fucking imperialist country or as Che Guevara put it, the belly of the beast. Yep. Yep. Anyway, back to the text. Is an excerpt. Here in this huge, dark, steaming slum, hundreds of thousands of Negroes are herded together like cattle most of them with nothing to eat and nothing to do. All the senses and imagination and sensibilities and emotions and sorrows and desires and hopes and ideas of a race with vivid feelings and deep emotional reactions are forced in upon themselves, bound inward by an iron ring of frustration. The prejudice that hems them in with its four insurmountable walls in this huge cauldron, inestimable natural gifts, 
wisdom, love, music, science, poetry are stamped down and left to boil with the dregs of an elementally corrupted nature, and thousands upon thousands of souls are destroyed by vice and misery and degradation, obliterated, wiped out, washed from the register of the living, dehumanized. What has not been devoured in your dark furnace, Harlem, by marijuana, by gin, by insanity, hysteria, syphilis. For a while, whenever I felt myself softening, relaxing, I had only to read that passage to become once more a rigid flame of indignation. It had precisely the same effect on me that Elijah Muhammad's writings used to have or the words of Malcolm X, or the words of any spokesman of the oppressed in any land. I vibrate sympathetically to any protest against tyranny. But I want to tell more about Love the Chief, the Christ. Chris so I wanted to interject, I guess, one more time here to... Um, circle back. Um you know that that he found this that I don't want to say like influential I guess I don't know um, but ultimately I want to I want to reiterate um, you know Elijah Muhammad uh, the same effect on me there we go that Elijah Muhammad's writings used to have or the words of Malcolm X or the words of any spokesman of the oppressed in any land. I vibrate sympathetically to any protest against tyranny. I think that I think that speaks a lot as to, you know, who he was, ultimately. Oh, I didn't realize my mic was muted. But, yeah, absolutely. It... I love the way he put that, and I kind of want to mean that. Yeah. Speaks I mean, you should, honestly. Just snag that quote out of the book. Yep. That's going to happen. All right. Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, not at the moment. Thank you, though. This loved the chief had a profound mind and an ecumenical education. I got the impression that the carnage of World War II, particularly the scientific, systematic approach to genocide of the Nazi regime, had been a traumatic experience from which it was impossible for him to recover. It was as if he had seen or experienced something which had changed him forever sickened his soul, overwhelmed him with sympathy and love for all mankind. He hated all restraints upon the human mind, the human spirit, all blind believing, all dogmatic assertion. He questioned everything. I was never sure of just what was driving him. That he was driven there could be no doubt. There was a sense of unreality about him. It seemed that he moved about in a mist. The atmosphere he created was like the mystic spell of Khalil 
Gibran's poetry. He seemed always to be listening to distant music or silent voices, or to be talking in a whisper to himself. He loved silence and said that it should only be broken for important communications, and he would expel students from his classes for distracting the others by chatting idly in the back rows. In his classes he was a dictator. He enforced certain rules which brooked no deviation, no smoking in his classroom at any time, before class, during class, at recess, or even when school was out. No talking in Love Jeeves' class, unless it was pertinent to the subject at hand. No eating or chewing gum in his classroom. No profanity. Simple rules, perhaps, but in San Quentin they were visionary, adventurous, audacious. The Christ enforced them strictly. The other teachers and the guards wondered how he got away with it. We students wondered why we enthusiastically submitted to it. The Christ would look surprised, as if he did not understand, if you asked him about it. If one of the other teachers forgot and came into Love the Jeep's room smoking, he was sent hopping. The same went for prison guards. I can still see the shocked expression of a substitute teacher who, coming into Love the Jeep's room during recess smoking a pipe, was told, Leave this room. When you came to Love the Jeep's classes, you came to learn. If you betrayed other motives, Get out of here this minute, without malice, but without equivocation. He was a magnet, an institution. He worked indefatigably. His day started when the school bell rang at 8 a.m. Often he would forego lunch to interview a few students and help them along with their schoolwork or personal problems. He never ceased complaining because the officials refused to allow him to eat lunch in the mess hall with the prisoners. Had they given him a cell, he would have taken it. <laughs> After lunch, he'd teach until 3 p.m. When night school convened at 6 p.m., the Christ would be there, beaming, radiating, and he'd teach passionately until 10 p.m. Then, reluctantly, he'd go home to suffer in exile until school opened next day. On Saturdays, he'd be there bright and early to teach. Love Jeef. He would have come on Sundays too, only the officials put their foot down and refused to hear it. The Christ settled for a Sunday evening radio program of two hours, which he taped for a broadcast to the prisoners. His classes were works of art. He made ancient history contemporary by evoking the total environment, intellectual, social, political, economic of an era. He breathed life into the shattered ruins of the past. Students sat entranced while the Christ performed, his silver-rimmed glasses reflecting light in eye-twinkling flashes. He dressed like a college boy, betraying a penchant for simple sweaters and plain slacks of no particular distinction. He burned incense in his classroom when he lectured on religion to evoke a certain mood. He was drawn to those students who seemed most impossible to teach. 
old men who have been illiterate all their lives and set in their ways. Love the chief didn't believe that anyone or anything in the universe was set in its ways. Those students who were intelligent and quickest to learn, he seemed reluctant to bother with, almost as if to say, pointing at the illiterates and speaking to the bright ones, Go away, leave me, you don't need me, these others do. Jesus wept. Love the chief would weep over a tragic event that had taken place 10,000 years ago in some forgotten byway in the Fertile Crescent. Once he was lecturing on the ancient Hebrews, he was angry with them for choosing to settle along the trade routes between Egypt and Mesopotamia. He showed how, over the centuries, time and time again, these people had been invaded, slaughtered, driven out, captured, but always to return. So, in this um, paragraph, like what he's describing is empathy. Empathy and a passion for teaching. Obviously, both of these are, are things that are disappearing, I feel like, from our society. I'm not saying that nobody wants to teach. What I'm saying is $35,000 a year and you have to buy your own fucking supplies with a master's degree. Are you fucking kidding me? That's what I'm saying. Anyway, um, but this right here, Love Chief would, sweep, or would weep over a traffic take two. <laughs> Love Chief would weep over a tragic event that had taken place 10,000 years ago in some byway in the Fertile Crescent. Uh, he was lecturing about the ancient Hebrews. He was angry with them for choosing to settle along the trade routes between Egypt and Mesopotamia. Obviously, he cares about this information, and I feel like part of it is probably trying to portray it in a way like that, um, you know, so his students are actually interested. Um. But, like, right. the ability to care about people that lived 10,000 years ago speaks to a level of empathy that I think most people are lacking. Very true. He was actually connecting with it of, like, okay, you know, versus what he was discussing a few minutes ago, um, pointing out the difference between, like, okay, here's something that is actually real from that and tangible. These were lives that were being affected by this. Because they kept making the same choice to go back to the same area, the promised land of milk and honey, to get invaded and kicked out again, you know? And, I mean, we still see the result of that today, only today, instead of it being the Middle Eastern Jews coming back to that area, now there's also colonizers of white Jews from Europe that converted or married into the family, things like that, who are coming to Israel and our Palestinian cousins are being kicked the fuck out of their homes to make room for colonizers to come there. But it's one of those things that because of the inherent importance of that land specifically, all the way through to ancient times to the very beginnings of the Jewish people, um, it's an attachment there that they're drawn back to 
that place. I've even felt drawn back to that place till I found out what was actually fucking happening there with, you know, the colonizing and stuff. Um, I would love to visit, but I would never be cool with someone losing their home to make a home for another person to come there, you know? Um, but it's hard. It's made for a lot of difficulties throughout history because of that attachment to that specific land. And whether Jewish or Muslim, both have that history of Abraham's blessing on the leaders of each of those basically tribes of Israel. Cause you know, um, it's all family. Um, but both of them have an inherent claim to that land and it's, it's produced wars forever. It's, it's hard to actually, you know, swallow that this, this is the result of that attachment. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, But, but yeah, I mean, the, the level of, of empathy that this man had, I, I think that's why he wanted the illiterate people. He wanted the people that needed the education yes. because he actually cared about what he was doing. Right. <laughs> like you guys that are getting it, you get it. You know, there's no extra time needed to be able to, you know, teach the people who are already getting it. It's um, making sure that the need is met where it's actually needed. He cared, gave a shit, showed it with his actions. Like that's something that we truly need in schools these days and aren't able to have because teachers get swamped with, you know, 25, 30 students per teacher and you don't have time for that one-on-one -on -one to be able to focus some more energy on the students that need it most. We're falling short. Agreed. All right, back to the text. What is it that keeps pulling them back to this spot? He exclaimed. He lost his breath. His face crumbled and he broke down and wept. Why do they insist on living in the middle of that? That, for once, I thought meaningly, the Christ couldn't find a word. That, that freeway. They have to sit down in the center of the freeway. That's all it is. Look, he pointed out the trade routes on the map behind his desk. Then he sat down and cried uncontrollably for several minutes. Can you imagine, like, imagine, if you will, a modern American parent, like, going on a rampage. Like, this teacher's crazy. He was crying uncontrollably as she's, like, you know, like, running in traffic with an anti-vaccine sign. Oh, God. I'm sorry. Did I, did uh, I paint that too much? It, no, it's just way too easy to picture in my head, especially after the recent protests where, like, at some of the schools not too far from here, um, a bunch of the anti-vaxxer parents stormed the school 
and it's such hypocrisy when they're talking about we're worried about our kids. And it's like you just traumatized a bunch of kids because you rushed the school banging on walls and windows. You broke in and we're banging on doors screaming about the vaccine. Yeah. Why you thought that needed to happen at your child's school is beyond me. But, you know, that's the type of shit we're really dealing with in 2021. Motherfuckers yeah. who are like, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to wash my hands and don't bring that jab anywhere near me. And it's like, oh you can't God. make me wash my hands. Mm-hmm. Merka. <laughs> Fuck. God, God damn it. Back to the mm-hmm. text. Yeah. <laughs> Another time he brought tape recorded selections from Thomas Wolfe's Look Homeward Angel. The Christ wept all through the tape. The Christ could weep over a line of poetry, over a single image in a poem, over the beauty of a poem's music, over the fact that man can talk, read, write, walk, reproduce, die, eat, eliminate, over the fact that a chicken can lay an egg. Once he lectured us all week on love. He quoted what poets had said of love, what novelists had said of love, what playwrights had said of love. He played tapes of Ashley Montagu on love. Over the weekend, each student was to write an essay on his own conception of love, mindful to have been influenced by what he had been listening to all week long. In my essay, I explained that I did not love white people. I quoted Malcolm X. How can I love the man who raped my mother, killed my father, enslaved my ancestors, dropped atomic bombs on Japan, killed off the Indians, and keeps me cooped up in the slums? I'd rather be tied up in a sack and tossed into the Harlem River first. Love Jeef refused to grade my paper. He returned it to me. I protested that he was being narrow-minded and dogmatic and not understanding why I did not love white people simply because he himself was white. He told me to talk with him after class. How can you do this to me? He asked. I've only written the way I feel, I said. Instead of answering, he cried. Jesus wept, I told him, and walked out. Two days later, he returned my essay, ungraded. There were instead spots on it, which I realized to be his tears. Although Love Jeeves' popularity among the prisoners continued to soar, and the waiting list for his classes grew longer and longer, prison authorities banned his radio program. Then they stopped him from coming in on Saturdays. Then they stopped him from teaching night school. Then they took away his pass and barred him from San Quentin. I must say that this man has not been adequately described. Certain things I hold back on purpose, others I don't know how to say. Until I began writing this, I did not know that I had a vivid memory of him. But now I can close my eyes and relive many scenes in which he goes into his act. 
a day in Folsom Prison. All right. Um, so, I guess first of all, do you have anything to say about that as we move into the next chapter? Are you muted? Yes, sorry. Um, Actually, I'll, I'll probably pause it there, to be honest, because we got to meet up with Zach for the State and Revolution stream. By the way, check out yesterday's State and Revolution stream. Um, was this the end of Chapter 3 here? Well, the chapters aren't numbered. Uh, some of the chapters are less than a page long because each chapter is a letter pretty much. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, all right. But, uh, all I was going to say is, uh, his thoughts on love for white people. It's fucking eye opening, you know, because there's a lot of white people who really don't fucking understand why a lot of black people feel that way. That's why, like, how can you even expect someone to want to connect with you especially if you still hold those types of perspective of you know white run fucking society no expecting that is asking too much yeah. you know like that's one of those things that that really needs to resonate with a lot of people for them to even be able to empathize with any people who have been oppressed. That's something that a lot of white people just can't connect with because they haven't fucking experienced being on the receiving end of it. Right. You know, that, that would be like somebody asking me to find love for Nazis. Never. Not going to happen. You know, and I'm not saying all white people are Nazis. I'm just saying as, you know, someone with Jewish family that was killed by them. You know, um, when it comes to any flavor of today's white supremacists, especially. Mm -mm, that's it's no different can't go around being an entire group of people causing harm and then be like, why don't you like me? Motherfucker, really? <laughs> you know? Um, and a lot of people don't realize that uh, there are racist things that they learned growing up just living in basically white culture in America that they, they're not aware is racist until it's brought to the table of like, wait a minute, no, here's right. why that thinking is fucked up yeah i mean a lot of times it has to be like explained why it's racist right and it's sad to be that fucking unaware but yes a lot of times that is absolutely what's called for is being like look here is why that is fucked up <laughs> now you have a choice to either choose to be a shitty person and be like nope I stand by this perspective or to grow as a person and be like wow that that is fucked up and wake up but you can no longer claim ignorance if it's been 
brought to your attention, you know, and that's something that I see is still a problem of people, even when confronted with those things, not wanting to self-criticize and be like, oh, fuck. Okay, I'm never going to go there again. It's an ego thing, too. Right. Hell, these days, motherfuckers are so sensitive, they get pissed just at being fucking pointed out like, well, wait a minute, you're white. Mm, it's an ego issue. The, that is a big core problem when it comes to people even being able to stop and listen. And not not just, you know, to hear the words coming out of somebody's mouth, but really fucking listen and let them impact you and actually open your perspective. Uh, that's something that's absolutely fucking necessary if humanity is ever going to fucking heal from these wounds. Agreed. Um, well, as I said, we recorded this yesterday, so Trisha and I will be seeing each other very shortly. If you missed it yesterday, check out our cross-platform stream with uh, Bread Theory. We are reading State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. Yes, indeed. Um, Such a good book. Yeah. I'm digging it. Agreed. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, check out the Alahi Spirit Runners special. Um, he's definitely going to be back at some point to talk about decolonization or land back or the fight to protect salmon or something. He is an incredible wealth of knowledge and we're just happy that we can pass along what he's learned. Absolutely. Learn right along with you from him. Dude. Yeah. Mako is badass and downright fucking inspiring. Yeah. I can't wait to have him back. Dude, the conversations with him are fucking pure gold from start to finish. Every time. I love his perspective on things. All right. Well, um, Have a great night. <laughs> I did that same shit. Let me just get get that in you. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so I was looking at you, but then I saw oh, oh, oh it's yeah. Got gotta bring the power fist into you. <laughs> Love, peace, solidarity. Live long and prosper. <laughs> and we'll see you in a little bit.